You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fox. So the same Christian Humanist Podcast. I'll be your host this week. My name is David Grubbs. I'm an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University. With me this week is Nathan Gilmore, associate professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. How are you, sir? Doing pretty well. We've got a good Friday off and then drive back from North Carolina Monday off. So I'm looking at a four-day weekend and a resurrection weekend. So things should be good. Excellent. Drive back from North Carolina weekend? Is that, the, is that the literal name of it? That is not what they call it. That's what I call it. They call it Easter Monday, which doesn't appear on any Christian calendar I've ever seen. <laughs> what it really is is a Monday that they give for all of the Pentecostals who tend to live in the Carolinas to drive back to Georgia. We also get that date off. Cool. I don't know I don't... where they go. Wisconsin? Yeah. Yeah, we 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 don't. Uh, the vast majority of our students are townies, and that maybe that's the thing that makes the difference. Uh, the person who also gets Monday off is Michael F- Michael Farmer, assistant professor of English at Crown College in Saint Bonifacius, Minnesota. How are you, sir? I'm good. I don't know what you your screw up was about to be, but I, I truly hope you were about to call me Michael of the Clan Farmer. <laughs> yes, we'll 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 say that's that's what that was. Um, actually, no, actually, that would be a FERPA violation for me to explain that. Probably, one of my advisees is named Michael, and I have my my desk is covered with all kinds of conflicting things that are going on in my life right now. And I think, and I happen to look at that name as I was about to say your name. Anyways. Um, I am scattered, dear listeners. Uh, I, I don't know how you gentlemen are. Um, Should you be? Scattered. Oh, good <laughs> lord. Wait. Huh. Gilmore's singing. Yeah, well, what else is going on in the network while I gather my scattered thoughts? Uh, Danny Anderson and I did a sectarian review, um, and now I can't remember what it was. Oh, yes, it was on the Kayan Potok novel, uh, the Chosen had a good time doing that. Uh, the Christian Feminist Podcast released an episode. I can't remember if it was between the last two, but it's still worth listening to on Beyonce. So if you haven't listened to that, be sure to tune in for that. Um, profiles. You guys have been doing some profiles here lately. Are there any recent ones that our listeners should hear about? Mine was several weeks ago, and I've already plugged it twice, so... <laughs> and I haven't looked at the calendar to see what's coming up, if the anything, Thornberry. this Monday. So uh, um, that that was a uh, a pitch that went wide. Well, I, actually, I think this coming Monday is my interview with Fred Sanders on his book about eternal generation. So um, I might have talked about that last week, but actually, I think it's it's in the queue for 
for this coming Monday, so that should have dropped by the time you're listening to this, dear listener. See, I knew there was something. All right. Well, uh, I know that this this releases uh, a week after, but for all of us, dear listeners, it's still Holy Week. Uh, we we are in the afternoon of uh, Monday Thursday, and we're we're looking towards uh, Good Friday, and then Resurrection Sunday to come. And uh, my companion this this week uh, has been uh, well. Uh, a fellow from long, long, long ago. Um, most Holy Weeks, I try to pick something old and and just sort of uh, meditate on it uh, as I'm going. Uh, sort of pick pick an old friend. Actually, this is something I I picked up from you, Nathan, when the first time you pitched um, the uh, the Saint Matthew Passion to us, and we did that episode. Uh, so uh, that's actually something I've been trying to do since then. Very good. Well, our companion this week, uh, my companion this week, and who I've introduced to you guys, is Leo the Great. So, Michael, who is this Leo the Great fellow, and is he Aslan? Leo? I read sermons by Leon the Great. Dang it, Michael. I don't know who Leon the Great is, but I would watch that movie. Didn't didn't he do Lazy Bones? (laughs) (laughs) Leon, Leon Redbone, that's who it was. Nice. Uh, Leo the Great is one of only two popes to be called the Great. Uh, Leo was pope in the middle of the 5th century, and he lived in Rome, and that is not a great time to be in Rome. But Leo, in addition to being a spiritual leader, was a very practical uh, guy. He, He organized grain distribution, and he set up a fire department, and most famously, he talked Attila the Hun out of invading Rome. Uh, So he's an interesting guy, because in addition to being a scholar and a pastor in some ways, he is is also a bureaucrat. Uh, He also... You you help me out... Um, I believe that he wrote the letter that determined the hypostatic union at the Council of Constant or Council of uh, Chalcedon. Is that is that? Am I accurately saying his role in that uh, in that affair, David? Yeah, the Tome of Leo was one of the what um, was one of the influential voices in that uh, in that particular meeting. I mean. The, Chalcedon is, is 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 interesting for a number of reasons, not least of which um, the growing divergence between East and West, Greek speaking East, Latin speaking West, in their in their uh, their vocabulary for talking about Trinitarian theology and incarnational theology, and sometimes things got kind of lost in translation. So that people in the East and the West were um, sometimes not entirely sure that they were on the same page. Leo's tomb, uh, Leo's tome, was uh, influential in um, sort of helping the Eastern fathers recognize that that he in the West, Leo in the West, was um, was not really disagreeing with them on substantial matters. The other thing he did, I believe, is increase the power of Rome, both the the city and the pope. Who, who runs it. So uh, I, I think Leo did an awful lot, for better or for worse, in elevating Rome above the other six seats of ancient Christianity. I think that's accurate. 
that he tends to be credited with that, with one of the ones who made the Roman bishop um, more and more like what gets called the Pope later. His feast day is November 10th, if you were wondering. I did wonder that. Anything uh, you'd want to toss in the hopper, Nathan? I mean, No, I mean, those uh, biographical notes are about what I'm aware of. You know, we're going to be talking about his homilies here in a bit, but uh, in addition to that, you know, as Michael said, he was one of the chief voices uh, at that Chalcedonian council, you know, some of the great, I, I would call them contradictions, others would call them paradoxes of Christology, you know, emerge from his writing, so immensely influential on the, the course of Christian theology. Yep. And staring down Attila the Hun, we can't forget that, that particular feat. How many How many popes can be said to have stared down a marauding pagan horde? Few. Very, very few. Well, Nathan, in a couple of episodes we've previously done, one much more recently, one long, long ago, uh, we batted around the notion of the homily or the sermon. So what sorts of sermons are these? Uh, how would you kind of characterize their approach to the, ta- the task of sermonizing? And what would be helpful for our listeners to know about the, the likely liturgical setting for these? Well, actually, David, uh, I'm going to start with a question back to you. I mean, as far as you know, were these uh, circular sermons that would have been distributed to other parishes, or would they have been largely delivered at Rome and then reported on secondhand? Uh, I don't actually know the answer to the first. The fact that we have them um, is 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 an indication that they may that that they probably had a circular life after that but there are references in the sermons to hey come back next time and i'll finish this idea so um, same leo time same <laughs> leo station <laughs> right right the uh yeah that, that, that those those to me seem to indicate that that these were these were preached whether they were circulated more widely in writing um, certainly they were. I mean, if we have them later, you, you know, they were. Um, how soon later? I don't, I don't actually know the answer to that question. Right, right, because my own temptation was to regard them basically in the same category as the homilies of Alfrich, which are very purposefully circulated to the parishes so that the heresies could be combated. That's and true. that's one of the, you know, the, the common threads that I see between these texts and those sermons of Alfrich a few centuries later uh, is that they are very targeted uh, their language is very theological in character. Uh, you know, you can tell uh, basically what ideas are in circulation there in, in 5th century Christendom by seeing what, what I almost said Alfred's there, what Leo opposes in these sermons. So one of the things that, you know, is notable about them is their brevity. Uh, you can read one of these sermons, you know, pretty easily in probably 10 minutes or so. This is not a you know, 40-minute inspirational talk. Uh, This is pretty much, you know, something that teaches the congregation in the context of a Eucharistic service. As David said, they would have been preached in Rome, uh, although we do know that Leo was also a traveler because in addition to going out and, you know, holding negotiations with Attila the Hun, uh, and, you know, you guys are talking about facing down barbarian hordes. I'm imagining him in a Jedi robe doing negotiations with the Trade Federation. (laughs) Um, but, uh, these are again, texts that you could really, you know, deliver 
uh, in a few minutes. They're very memorable for that reason, but they're also very dense in their content. So, uh, you know, they are definitely uh, sermons that I can sit down and read. I, I do have to wonder about my own capacity to receive this kind of dense prose through my ears. Uh, I don't know if I'd be able to listen to one of these and, and get what I get when I read them. Uh, David, I mean, do you get that impression when you read these, or uh, am I just not a very good listener? Well, I have I read them in the links that I sent to you guys, but also um, LibriVox has an audio recording of this entire collection. And I actually first heard it in that form while I was driving. Um, now, I've listened to them both, uh, listened to all, all, all three of the ones that we're looking at today through several times, and that has helped with the recall. But... Um, but yeah, I, I, I have, I have listened to them and they listen pretty well, but it, okay, helps, if all you, right. it helps if you have a good reader. <laughs> yeah, that's fair enough. And like I said, I mean, just the density of the arguments is kind of what I had in mind. I, my, my own tendency is I have to read that kind of thing. I'm not very good at, at hearing it and picking up on it. I don't do audiobooks for that reason. Okay. Well, I do a lot of audiobooks, so I'm probably not a typical modern listener though i don't know if this is what people were regularly getting when they showed up for you know leo's preaching time maybe he had a well-trained audience yeah fair enough fair enough so Um, david did you feel like you don't have to go to church this week because you listen to these sermons from librivox no Um, call back yes yeah podcast podcast sermon episode guys go listen to that uh, no, I don't. I don't feel like I don't need to go to church because I listen to Leo. Uh, on the other hand, I do think that bringing Leo with me um, into Resurrection Sunday will uh, will be good. I, I, I think uh, memories of things like this um, enrich the uh, the meeting of God's people. Um, they don't replace it. Was well, there anything else uh, that we'd like to say about these sermons as sermons? They don't strike me as particularly exegetical, nor are they particularly focused on any one gospel text. It was was that interesting to y'all? It is, but I am saving that bullet for uh, the end of the episode, David, so let's not steal too much thunder, shall we? <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right. Well, that will be that will be an Easter egg for the end. Well, in uh, our Lindbeck triptych a few episodes ago, the topic of ecumenical creeds and councils cropped up and the role that the major orthodox dogmas play in the life of the church. Um, Leo is also concerned with this topic. Um, As Michael's bio has already uh, indicated, uh, Leo is literally suited up in the middle of this topic. He is engaged with with Chalcedon, not as a a thing he has received, but as something he's he's actually part of, even if uh, through, through, through distance. Uh, so what is the Chalcedonian definition and what work is Leo doing with those categories in these sermons, Michael? Well, um, I've always heard it called the hypostatic union. The formulation is probably pretty familiar to most of our listeners. It is that Christ was fully God, 100% God and 100% man. You can think of that as, Na- as Nathan does as a contradiction, or you can think of it as a, as a paradox, the way the Trinity is a paradox. Um, 
he he really centralizes this so he spends a couple of sections at the beginning of sermon 84 which is the first one you gave us i don't know what the uh i don't know what the connection between these three sermons are uh, in particular but it's the first one you gave us anyway um and, and he he begins with the hypostatic union and says to understand what the passion is and to understand what easter is we really need to be able to understand this um so he says, each nature, that, that is the divine and the human nature, does indeed express its real existence by actions that distinguish it, but neither separates itself from connection with the other. Nothing is wanting there on either side. In the majesty, the humility is complete. In the humility, the majesty is complete. So there, there's a sense here, not just that Christ has to be fully God and fully man in order to redeem humankind, which is some, sometimes what you hear. Uh, Right, you you some you sometimes hear that this happened because only God could have died, but He has to die as a man, and so you need both of these things at once. Uh, I think Leo is much more uh, mystical about this. In the Majesty, the humility is complete. In the humility, the Majesty is complete. Somehow, and I don't want to be blasphemous, and I'm sure Leo doesn't either, but somehow, Christ's Godhood needs His manhood in order to. Uh, complete itself, and certainly vice versa should be an un uncontroversial opinion. So nothing about this entire thing he's going to be talking about makes any sense, he says, if you don't begin with the hypostatic union. Uh, so did you have anything other than that in mind, David? Well, I'll, I'll lateral to, to Nathan before I run with it. Well, I've got a question for you guys, because this is one of my nightmares from hanging around with Bible majors in college, uh, is that, you know, whenever I would slip and talk about, uh, you know, God being on the cross, I was immediately accused of patropassianism because that's one of those big polysyllabic words they learned in church history. And it seems like that's what Leo's leaning towards here, that it is uh, the Father who suffers on the cross because the Father is never separate from the Son. Uh so, I mean, I'm sure I'm getting it wrong because I always get Christology and Trinitarian theology wrong, which is why I'm glad David does those interviews. But what's going on here? I mean, is Leo doing patropassianism or is something else going on here? Leo is very careful to say that Christ's suffering is not, um, the, that the suffering is not in the divine nature. The suffering is, a, is, is human suffering of the human nature, but the one person who experiences it uh, is the person of God the Son. So it is, it is one person who has two natures. The suffering is, 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 a, is, is a suffering of the human nature. Um, so in, in some mysterious way... Uh, the person of the son experiences it. The person of the father does not experience it. Right. Right. To me, there's a difference between saying God was on the cross and saying the father was on the cross. And I'm looking through Leo and I don't see where he makes a claim about the father being on the cross. Yeah. He says that there's no division between the two. Um, and that yeah, is that's the passage I had in mind. Right. Um, but that's particularly in the in connection uh, to the the cry of dereliction, um, why hast thou forsaken me, uh, which um, 
is 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 a particularly particularly interesting section to me. He's um, he's doing things with the cry of dereliction that um, that I don't hear a lot in Easter sermons today from evangelicals. They they're much more likely to swing for the fence at oh how how awful it must have been for Jesus to have his father turn his back on him. Um, Leo's read of that passage is uh, is much more focused on how uh, Christ is standing in the in the place of um, of God's uh, of God's anointed um, in those situations in which um, the the God's God's anointed um, think uh, in the Psalms right. Uh, especially the Davidic Psalms, um, in which God rescuing uh, His anointed one uh, is is what is what He expects. Um, but Jesus doesn't get rescued. Um, but he but he wants to make it clear that the whole time that he is suffering in his humanity, um, that that in his deity is he is never cut off. Um, that he is never cut off from the Father in that way, but that does not, uh, he says, diminish the the fullness of his human suffering. So it's it's very mysterious, um, which which is probably not frustrating to some people, um, but uh, he 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 wa- he doesn't want to back off from from any of the fullness of the humanity or any of the fullness of the deity. Uh, and it ends up, um, he, he's got, he's got some good passages. I would just, I would just recommend read, you know, re- read, read, read the whole thing. Um, but in particular, uh, the, he's interested in, um, wanting to synthesize Christ saying, not my will, but your will with passages that say that, uh, Christ gave himself. So does he want to give himself or does he not want to give himself? Um, the Leo's answer seems to be something like as a human, he doesn't want to give himself in death because humans don't, you know, humans don't want to die. Right. Um, And we don't want to talk about the savior as suicidal. Right. But, uh, as as God the Son, he wants, as he has always wanted, to give himself for the salvation of the world. And so um, what we see played out is uh, the God-man choosing what in his humanity he does not want because it is, it is the greater thing. Um, he has a passage where um, he talks about the, the cry of dereliction pointing out how he has to, how he has to choose to be forsaken that is not rescued not heard in deliverance um, in order to achieve what he wants that he is choosing it um, and that's really um, I think a, a really interesting way to to play out these these terms that he's uh, that he's uh, helped to help contribute language for at the Council of Cal- uh, at the Council of Chalcedon. 
I'm, and I'm, listeners, you're I'm, hearing I'm, one of the reasons why Lindbeck remains appealing to me. Because if I have to get all the propositions straight, I'm screwed. <laughs> I'm I'm trying to find the passage. I thought I underlined it, but I must not have. There, there's a there's a place where he says that. Um, yeah, here we go. Uh, this is sermon. Roman numerals, man. Sermon 58 at the very end. And so, dearly beloved, when the Son of God says, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, he uses the outcry of our nature and pleads the cause of human frailty and trembling, that our patience may be strengthened and our fears driven away in the things which we have to bear. So that Christ is not actually asking for the cup to pass from him. He's just kind of in solidarity with us. I don't I don't really like that. The uh he uses the outcry of our nature and pleads the cause of human frailty and pleading. Um he's he's letting out the cry that any real human would make in that situation. Um the I, I think it's interesting though the what what's followed that with that is uh, these words of the head are the salvation of the whole body. These words have instructed all the faithful and kindled the zeal of all the confessors and crowned all the martyrs. The fact that he begins by saying, "If it is possible, let this p- cup pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but thou um, you know he founds in that sort of dramatic moment uh the the ability of those who follow Christ to be able to say I don't want to die but um, the martyrs uh, you know I will embrace the martyrs crown if that is God's will that 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 you know that Christ of being being able to sort of rise above um, that very natural human desire is makes possible our ability to make the same sort of choice i i think that's interesting yeah yeah i guess i guess i guess when you read it that way i i read it more like uh not pretending exactly but that he was doing Mm. that for our benefit rather than because you know he didn't want to go through that he does it leo does talk about that way does talk about that a lot as if as if the things that are being said are for the benefit of those who hear um that yeah i I think i think i agree with you that that's something that kind of makes me kind of cock my head and wrinkle my brow um it's 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 it seems to detract from the authenticity of the moment on the other hand he regards everything that christ does and says as intentionally revelatory and maybe maybe that's the sense in which he's meaning this. I don't know. Right. And part of my struggle, I'll go, I'll go ahead and call it that, with, with texts like this is that, again, my education in biblical studies teaches me to emphasize the particularity of each of the four Gospels. And, you know, this synthesis, this harmonizing of the four Gospels that he's doing all through here uh, is very alien to my way of reading. So, I mean, when you and Michael were just talking about, you know, this doesn't strike me as, you know, authentic and, you know, every moment is revelatory. That that strikes me as a Johannine move. So, I mean, you know, I fully expect Jesus as the Gospel of John presents Jesus 
to be in complete control of the situation. You know, he, uh, my time has come. Why are you trying to stop it from coming? It is finished. You know, just completely in control, completely calm at every point. Uh, but then I expect the Jesus that I see in the gospel of Mark to be something more like my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, and you know, because I think of those as very distinctive and very distinct, I won't even say distinctive, distinct literary artifacts, you know, I don't think of those stories, I guess, you know, informing each other the way that Pope Leo does. And that's part of what makes, you know, readings like this interesting for me because they force me to confront the contingency of the questions that I bring to a text like this. I never would have gone this direction with this text. Uh, and in fact, one of the last uh, Easter's when I was a preacher, I, uh, I preached the Gospel of John resurrection at the sunrise service, taught the Matthew version in Sunday school, and then preached the Luke version at 11 o'clock. And each of the three was a completely different picture of the resurrection. And again, that's a fruit of my training, right? That's something that probably, you know, Pope Leo or anyone from, you know, this century would find just completely wackadoodle. You know, why in the world would you create three distinctive pictures? Uh, and again, you know, it reminds me of my contingency. I think that's healthy. Interesting. I, I, seeing maybe the, the, the pressure of the, the, the different the four different gospel perspectives um, that the pressure of that is driving him to perhaps even come up with categories like in the Chalcedonian definition that would permit all four of these perspectives to be spoken simultaneously. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, when he talks about, you know, the human nature of Christ crying out, why have you forsaken me? You know, I don't hear the human nature of Christ saying that I hear the gospel of Mark saying that. And when it's, you know, it is the divine nature of the Son to give himself for the salvation of the world, he says that is the divine nature of the Son. I say that's the Gospel of John. So again, you know, I, I don't think that necessarily we're answering the same question differently. We're just asking different questions of the text. Hmm. Well, speaking of questions of the text, uh, he's not only interested in the person of Jesus, he's also interested in other important characters in these passion narratives. Uh, two in particular, uh, two of Jesus' disciples, Judas the betrayer and Peter the denier. So what does Leo, Leo teach us by focusing on these moments in the story, Nathan? Well, to start with Peter... You know, his focus here is on the frailty of Peter, which is appropriate given the narrative contours of what's, what's going on here. Um, you know, this is, and you know, this is something that, you know, you can hear variations of it even in sermons today. This is at once the bold Peter who promises that he won't be the one who, you know, turns away. And it's also the frail Peter who, you know, denies him three times. Uh, you know, the moment that he focuses on, and I really love this as a, as a homiletic moment, uh, is the looking back upon Peter, uh, that I, I, I know the footnote tells me, and actually let me click on the footnote here. Uh, yeah, Matthew and Luke both have this moment. Uh, and you know, he renders it, you know, I'm going to borrow Michael's word here as a mystical experience. You know, this is Peter being looked upon by his savior and realizing that his sins are seen. 
Uh, so again, I mean, just a wonderful homiletic rendering of this. I mean, it's a very literary treatment of it. Uh, you know, it's just really a, a wonderful way to take Peter. Now, when he turns to Judas, it's really fascinating because what he's more focused on there, I think, is the philosophical character of Judas's act. Uh, so, I mean, you know, again, taking the incarnation seriously, uh, Leo really takes the betrayal of Judas as the epitome and the emblem of humanity's attack upon God in every act of sin that we commit. Uh, and so, you know, the... Well, I mean, what what was the, the phrase that he uses here? And I'm, I'm trying to find it here in uh, Sermon 27. No, not 27. Wrong one. Sorry. Uh, nice to rate, know I'm not the only one who can't do Roman numerals. Yeah. I, <laughs> no, I can do the Roman numerals. I just can't find the sermon I'm looking for. Uh, but, you know, for Judas, you know, the, the emphasis is really, like I said, you know, the fact that his wretchedness goes as far as wretchedness can possibly go. Uh, it's, you know, something that echoes, again, you know, whether Dante has, you know, looked at, um, whether Dante has looked at, you know, these sermons or not, I don't know, but you think of, you know, what's going on in, uh, Cositus at the end of Inferno, you get, you know, all four kinds of betrayal and Judas is the height of it. Um, so, you know, I think that, you know, in one of them, it's a very dramatic literary reading of what's going on. In the other one, uh, it's a very philosophical reading. So, I mean, it's fascinating that, you know, again, whereas, you know, an evangelical sermon to talk about, you know, moments of contrast uh, tends to treat the Peter moment as a moral exemplar. You know, uh, I have heard as often as not, uh, don't be like Peter sermons, uh, whereas with Judas, he is treated as pretty much a plot device in most evangelical sermons I've heard. Again, I mean, you know, we are bringing very different questions to the text here so that, you know, the Petrine moment is the moment of the awareness of self as sinner. Uh, the Judas moment is, you know, more of a philosophical exploration of the nature and the depths of sin. Um, do you, Nathan, do you think going back to the way evangelicals tend to talk about those, do you think it's because implicitly... Uh, they don't think being a, Judas is an option for them. I think that's probably a fair way to think about it. Yeah. I mean, you know, the idea that, you know, Judas is a character to which we can relate, you know, I mean, when I've taught, uh, Kazant Zakis's novel, The Last Temptation of Christ, that spends a lot of time in the head of Judas, uh, students find those passages more alien by far than the passages that spend time in the head of john or peter or thomas or the other disciples what did you think of the bit in sermon 58 where it's talking about judas at uh judas at the last supper remind me of the passage i'm, I'm trying to find it in 58 right now sure uh it's the this the section begins with uh, Jesus ordaining the sacrament of his body and blood was teaching them what kind of victim must be offered up to God and not even from this mystery was the betrayer kept away in order to show that he was exasperated by no personal wrong um, and then uh, basically ex basically saying uh, later on uh, a little bit later uh, 
the honor of the apostolic rank was not denied thee, speaking to Judas, nor yet a share in the sacraments. Um, essentially saying Judas is included right up into the point where he decides to walk out and that this is a kind of show of mercy on Christ's part to say, I've, I've done nothing to rile you up. <laughs> right, or at the very least, I have wronged you in no way that would warrant an act of revenge. Uh, so, I mean, I, I definitely think that that's, you know, uh, a valid point in there. I mean, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, and, and one more point, I mean, I'm going to shift laterally cause this is what I was trying to search for last time. And I finally found it. What I find fascinating is that the culmination of the discussion of Judas as sort of the epitome of sin, uh, is that he talks about the execution of Judas coming at his own hand. So, it stands in stark contrast to the execution of Jesus, who, you know, is the, well, I mean, it's the passion of the Christ. Things happen to him. Uh, but for Judas, it is at once active and passive. He is slaughtered, but he is also the slayer. So, you know, I, I think that, you know, as a philosophical examination, again, you know, the question that, you know, I've, I've heard more often than not is, you know, what does this say about whether suicides go to heaven or not? That's not at all the concern of the text, and I think Leo gets that. Yeah, I mean, how could that be the concern concern of the text? Talk about missing the forest for the trees. Indeed. I thought uh, Leo... Hmm, I'm trying to think of how to say this. He did not seem to be as dismissive of Judas as some people are. It's sometimes... It sometimes seemed to me that he was uh, even suggesting that if Judas hadn't killed himself, he could have still been redeemed, which I think that has to be true, but you never hear people talk about it. Yeah, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, 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 yeah, the idea that, that he was cut off, um, cut off from repentance uh, by his own his own hardness, uh, I think is 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 built into Leo's take. I think he finds it necessary, actually. Well, the issue of uh, anti-Semitism uh, inevitably arises when readers today encounter uh, especially patristic and medieval Christian writers um, about the crucifixion. Uh, it's, it's unavoidable in this text. Leo keeps saying, you Jews, and every time I cringe. So what here do you find to be a problem, Michael? And is there anything here that we might find helpful anyway? Is it just a problem of tone? Um, how, would you, how would you talk about that? It is not just a problem of tone, and sometimes I think it is. Sometimes I think these ancient writers, you know, how many how many Jews would they really have met? How, how many, I mean, I, I doubt they have specific people in mind. I think they probably just use Jews to mean enemies of Christianity, which is its own set of problems. But um, Leo doesn't do that. He is very explicit whom he's talking to and he he is talking to uh he is talking to observant jewish people and uh he is quite dismissive of them 
in a way that I think edges into heresy even. So this is Sermon 54. And when the morning was come, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. This morning, O ye Jews, was for you not the rising, but the setting of the sun. Nor did the wanted daylight visit your eyes, but a night of blackest darkness brooded on your naughty hearts. Oh, I would really like to know what that is in Latin. Naughty. It just, <laughs> just seems strange in English. This morning overthrew for you the temple and its altars, did away with the law and the prophets, destroyed the kingdom and the priesthood, turned all your feasts into eternal mourning. For ye resolved on a mad and bloody council, ye fat bulls, ye many oxen, ye roaring wild beasts, ye rabid dogs, to give up to death the author of life and the Lord of glory. And as if the enormity of your fury could be palliated by employing the verdict of him who ruled your province, you led Jesus bound, Pilate's judgment, etc., etc., etc. This is pretty extreme even for even for ancient and medieval Christian authors, wouldn't you say? Is he talking is he talking to Jews in his own day, or is he talking to the Jews in the story? The way that he talked, the way that he talked to Judas in the story. He's he's definitely talking to Jews in the story, but the fact that he brings in Jewish ritual observance, I think, means he has to be going beyond that. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the whole point here is I, that Judaism has been destroyed. Right. One question that I have is a lexical one because I know in New Testament studies, when the uh, Greek noun eudioi comes up in the uh, text of John, especially. Uh, and as I said that, I can hear David Bentley Hart judging me for my bad pronunciation, but that's another anxiety for another day. Uh, but it can reasonably trans be translated as a regional term rather than an ethnic term. Uh, and I wonder how long that distinction was still possible in the history of that noun. So, I mean, for instance, if he is talking here uh, and, you know, my, my patristic Latin is almost non-existent, so I really don't have an answer to this. But I do wonder whether, you know, this term Jews, as it gets translated in our English translation, uh, already had the ethnic sense that we think of now, uh, whether we're thinking of, you know, Martin Luther, whether we're talking about, you know, pogroms or whatever else, or whether it still had that regional sense as its main connotation does that make sense uh, david do you know anything about the 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 lexical character of the noun jews at this point in history i don't actually know um i don't know that answer um the point uh the point that was made uh i think you made it michael earlier of, of how many jews does he actually know probably probably not many um it seems it it, it it seems to me that a lot of this is uh, a magnification of he's applying language from the Psalms um, particularly uh, Psalm 22 which was uh, you know which is the my God my God why hast thou forsaken me um, Psalm he's applying the 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 language of the the enemies of the speaker in the Psalm he's applying those titles uh to the uh, to the religious leaders who are uh, uh, um, pursuing Christ, persecuting Christ in this way, um, 
the fact that he's he that that this diatribe comes after him quoting the verse that says when the morning was come all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel um he seems like I know that's, uh, and I can't tell you which of these Gospels. Maybe you could help me on this, Nathan. Um, which of the Gospels is it that routinely um, uses the word Jews as a way of saying the, the religious authorities? Isn't that that would be the Gospel of John, yep. Okay. I mean, we've already kind of talked about the degree to which John seems to be the controlling uh, the the control for for Leo's um, theological thinking. It may also be the control for his rhetorical thinking as well. Right, and I'm also reminded I I have my Old Testament or not Old Testament. Wow, my old English students uh, translate uh, Alfrich's Easter sermon, and it also has that diatribe against the Jews. And you're right, David. I mean, it is a literary apostrophe. Um, I don't think that that excuses it, but I do think that it situates it within a certain rhetorical practice. Uh, it's, it's also bad theology, though, because he says that the crucifixion did away with the law and the prophets, which is, I mean, explicitly counter what, to what Jesus said. Yeah. Um, I mean, in other places, he talks about Christ fulfilling the law. And fulfilling the prophets, um, but but yeah, here he's he's definitely using that language of destruction in in a way that I I, I, w- I would agree is not um, unheretical. I I don't know that I would call it I don't know that I would call it heresy. It's it's that he's pushing the the New Testament theology of of Christ having. Um, fulfilled certain things, and that's why they are no longer compulsory because he is the he is the type to which they are the anti-type. It's 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 treating that as if there was something negative and worth discarding about the about the the types themselves. Which... Right, and and to talk like a biblical studies person again, I mean, in those passages, he's definitely privileging. Hebrews and Galatians and to some extent Romans over the Gospel of Matthew. So in other words, he is letting Matthew speak only in the very limited boundaries that, you know, a very particular kind of reading of Hebrews allows. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he's, he, he's definitely having, um, his, his epistles are shaping his reading of the Gospels. Um, in a way that um, apparently Nathan makes makes biblical studies people grumpy, so. <laughs> but you know, I'm 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 a sloppy systematic traditionalist, so I'm fine with it. But but I understand. Well, no, as I said, and let me say this because David's tweaking my nose a bit, uh, rightly so. Uh, but you know, this also is a good healthy reminder for me just how contingent the last 200 years of biblical studies stand in the long tradition of biblical interpretation. I've got to recognize that I belong to a moment just like Leo belongs to a moment. Mm-hmm. I mean, the fact, though, that his moment is not... Um, the, the, the fact that in his moment probably... Um, I, don't, I, I don't know this, so, so we're, we're open to correction on the historical front. 
it seems to me that for Leo, Jews are mainly biblical characters, and he does he does he doesn't seem to be thinking of th that that that's it that that char that that literary ca characterization from this one narrative seems to be informing um, his rhetoric and his attitudes in a way that unbalanced um, I think would be I think is is ends up being historically unhealthy um, I'll just I'll just go ahead and say that yeah historically ruinous let's not yeah you know soft pedal it yes yeah yeah but I mean you're right it, he's he's not making direct statements about fifth century Jews he's not saying go burn down a synagogue or anything like that mm -hmm. and I have no idea what his administrative attitude was toward Roman Jews mm-hmm um, there, there definitely are, like, if we want to, if we want to go and open all those closets, we will find skeletons. Um, but the, it, I think that that kind of internalization of that, I, I, what, what, what I would call uh, Johannine rhetoric, um, and it combined with the ways that uh, the the psalms of suffering or the psalms of, of execration um, were applied um, in in the preaching and acts uh, to to those who kill who um, arranged the murder of Christ. Um, the, the the ways that that language gets used, I think, ends up becoming um, in this in this unbalanced way something that something that fuels the fire. Oh yeah, I mean in Acts, every time Peter talks in Jerusalem, he has to throw in Jesus, the one who you killed. So I right. mean, there's definitely right. a literary precedent for this. Mm -hmm. The difference, though, is that Peter is a Jew, and that he's yeah. and that he's a speaking he's speaking as a Jew to Jews in the way that the Jewish prophets always spoke to the Jewish people. He's allowed to use that word. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, yeah, I, I, I guess, but th there's, I mean, there's a, there's a way in which the, the later, the later Christian church sort of adopting rhetoric that I think has its roots ultimately in the prophets, making an internal call to God's people, um, ends up becoming, um, becoming a weapon for a different agenda. Yeah, because right. I think it's pretty clear Leo doesn't think of the Jews as God's people. Right. Yeah. And again, I, just to go back to that lexical question one more time, I mean, I, I think I figured out what what how I should formulate it. Is Jews here the opposite of nations, the way that it tends to be in St. Paul's letters? Or is Jews the opposite of Galileans, the way it tends to be in the Gospel of John? Huh. Oh, that's interesting. Because, I mean, in Kine Greek, it can be either one, and you got to pay attention to what's going on in a given text. But, you know, without that context here for this letter, I don't know which connotation is primary. Hmm. Well, I don't know that we'll resolve it in this episode. Listeners, if someone has this uh, historical lore, please do write in. Well, maybe we should open up instead another can of worms. How about that? 
One of the reasons this sermon interests me is Leo's continued return to the idea of agency, uh, the freedom of the story's actors to pursue their own course. So, Nathan, who is free in this story, and how does he argue their freedom affects the way we should understand the story? Well, jumping back to Judas and a couple of the points that we were making there, uh, Judas stands in here almost as, again, a philosophical thought experiment for humanity writ large. Uh, So if any human being would be inclined to say, you know, I am somehow compelled to stand against the kingdom of Christ, I am somehow compelled uh, to do what is wrong in the world. Leo in this sermon uh, talks about how, you know, Judas is brought all the way into the most inner circle of the disciples. Uh, Judas is, you know, allowed to hear every secret that every other disciple hears. He doesn't depart until the teaching is over. Uh, And in fact, as we mentioned earlier, he even speculates that uh, in the hours after the betrayal of Christ, uh, Judas was still free uh, to repent from that sin and to seek redemption, even though he chooses not to. So it's a really robust sense of human agency here. And like I said, I mean, I I really, really enjoy the fact that, you know, in this homiletic moment, uh, Leo picks the figure of Judas as the locus for that uh, exploration. Uh, It's really, I mean, just masterfully done. There's no doubt about it. The other big uh, site of freedom in this uh, trio of sermons that we looked at uh, is Jesus himself. Uh, And once again, uh, taking that Johannine cue uh, Leo insists over and over uh, that Jesus gives himself to be crucified. He himself uh, goes to be betrayed. He himself allows all of this to happen, so on and so forth, uh, up to the point of saying that, you know, the divine will that we talked about earlier uh, is operative all the way up to the point where he gives up his spirit and he dies. Uh, so again, you know, the idea that human beings have this agency and that every sin that we commit uh, is ultimately something that, you know, could have been otherwise, takes its mirror in Jesus, the perfect human being, who at every step could have done otherwise, uh, and yet does what is redeeming for the world. So it's really, you know, a masterful sort of mirror image that he sets up here. You know, beyond that, you know, I mean, the implication certainly seems to be that if on one end, Judas, who commits the ultimate crime, is entirely free, and on the other end, Jesus, who redeems the world from every sin, is completely free, then those of us who are hearing this sermon, who are somewhere on that spectrum in the middle, uh, we also have that freedom. So it's definitely a homily in the sense of a moral exhortation uh, to regard ourselves in any given moment as the ones who are free uh, to receive this gift from God, who are free to act faithfully uh, in consonance with the great act of God, uh, and who have no excuse when we do otherwise. Um, Those are the two biggies. Uh, You know, did you guys see any other spots where agency, liberty, freedom play a prominent role? Michael? I didn't notice any. Did you? Um, the, the theme of the freedom of Christ is one, um, 
that he he absolutely develops here and he and he develops elsewhere um that's something that's actually really important uh really important to him um but but that idea of uh that idea of freedom is something that uh is is important to him elsewhere and the in these sermons those are the main two incidences uh instances instances of it and uh, I, I really liked the uh, the contrast that he makes between between those two, Nathan, and and I agree. I, I think he would hear your explication of it and say, "You have heard me rightly." Um, you know, all the even Cal- though you have some goofy ideas about the Gospels, <laughs> uh, like like all the Calvin in me, like like kind of rises up and wants to say, "But asterisk." Um, but I I think in terms in terms of in terms of Leo. Um, I think you, I think you've explained him rightly. I think this is one of the things in which, you know, if Calvin wants to say strong things about our lack of freedom, he's going to, he's going to have to go fight Leo about that. Um, interesting thing though, and this was just this morning as I was prepping, um, prepping for this episode, getting, getting my mind back into it. Uh, I, uh, a, a Twitter blogger. Uh, fellow that I follow uh, by the name of Derek Rishmawi, uh had just um, written written a blog about John Owen, um, the uh, the Calvinist theologian from the 17th century. Uh, John Owen talking about how the idea of Christ's Christ willingly choosing his death matters more to theology of atonement than the idea of that suffering being in some sense penal uh, in some sense a punishment for sin um, now Owen believed that believed in a penal uh, substitutionary atonement um, but in the the, uh, the 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 bit that Rishmawe is talking about um, what's more important for Owen is that Christ willingly lays down his life and the Owen quote he brings is that uh, God was more pleased by the obedience of Christ than he was displeased by the disobedience of man. Um, anyway, I think this is one of those points where old Leo and then John Owen much later on would probably have high-fived at that point. <laughs> nice. Which I, I look for those things, dear listeners, when I'm reading um, when I'm reading. Uh, Christian thinkers from kind of across the centuries and across the spectrum, you know, the points at which they can high five one another. Um, uh, I always find those, uh, those as, as interesting and special. Well, gentlemen, uh, I have focused our conversation on the things that stuck out to me, but what else in these sermons uh, would merit our listeners attention? Michael. I'm really interested in the way he portrays the chief priests, not so much in their capacity as Jews, but in their capacity as vicious people. The The reason they've decided to do this is they have essentially misplaced their affections. Uh, it says, For when Paschal Feast began, those who ought to have adorned the temple, cleansed the vessels, provided the victims, and employed a holier zeal in the purifications than the law enjoined, seized with the fury of traitorous hate, gave themselves up to one work, and with uniform cruelty conspire for one crime, though they were doomed to gain nothing by the punishment of innocence. 
uh, and the condemnation of righteousness, except the failure to apprehend the new mysteries and the violation of the old. Their problem here is they care too much about the wrong things and not enough about the right thing. Their anxiety, he says, served not the cause of religion, but their own incrimination. I thought that was very interesting as a kind of hmm. virtue ethics fan. Yeah, and also maybe uh, if if you kind of like tilt your head and squint, also kind of a good statement about that, that old ritual law that they should have been the proper guardians of. Yes, and he's almost sympathetic. He he almost sees like, seems like he understands where they're coming from. Hmm. Almost. Yeah. <laughs> almost. Nathan? I was interested in a moment at the end of uh, Sermon 34, if I'm getting the Roman numerals correct, uh, in which Leo uh, reminds us that he is a, a 5th century preacher and not a 20th century preacher because the tendency so often for, again, you know, modern preachers, evangelicals especially, is to take a look at, uh, you know, all of the observances and the rituals and so on and so forth and say, well, you know, Jesus has made it so that now it's a relationship, not a religion. Uh, but Leo here at the end, I mean, uh, certainly reframes the seasons of fasting and feasting. He certainly situates them uh, differently in the story than, you know, the characters in the story itself would have, but still enjoins the people to live that life of fasting and of penance and of, you know, living in between the times. So uh, I think, again, that's a helpful reminder to me uh, that not everyone who wants to emphasize, you know, Jesus's transcendent quality and his position uh, in a certain history of sacrifices and the end of sacrifices and the fulfillment of sacrifices and all those groovy things that you find in the New Testament, uh, that doesn't always lead to quiet time alone with your Bible. It can lead to a very robust ritual life. And uh, again, it's a good reminder. I know I keep coming back to this, but this honestly is the uh, most helpful thing for me when I read texts, you know, not from, you know, the, the biblical studies where I've done my academic training and the evangelical church where I've done most of my worshiping. Uh, they remind me of my contingency, and I think that's healthy. Cool. Very cool. Well, dear listeners, um, I recommend uh, you could you look those you can look these up too. Um, we'll I believe we can uh, post the the links to these uh, in the show notes uh, when uh, when those post on our blog. But uh, they're they're from a text uh, the the old. Uh, church fathers um, books that are uh, now in the public domain. I can't remember the publisher, but uh, they are Sermon 54, Sermon uh, 58, and Sermon 68. Um, he actually preaches a, just a long string of on the passion sermons in a row. So clearly these were collected from multiple weeks and multiple years. Anyway, well, what are we doing next week? Next week, uh, we are going to be talking about the 1944 classic episode of the radio series Suspense, Donovan's Brain, which I listened to in sixth grade and which uh, scared me almost to death. So we'll be talking about that. And Nathan won't be here, so we have enlisted a ringer. Uh, the Christian Feminist Podcast's Christina Bieber-Lake. I can't think of a better person to talk about Donovan's brain with.
I'm really, really excited for this one. I will say there are multiple versions of this, even from Suspense. So if our listeners want to hear this before our episode, they should make sure they look for the one with Orson Welles in it. Huzzah. Well, dear listeners, if you have any comments or questions about this episode, you can email them to us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. You can post them on our Facebook wall if you're still on Facebook. You can also post them in the show notes on our blog, christianhumanist.org, when the show notes for this uh, episode posts. Uh, you can also give us iTunes reviews. Uh, we, we crave good reviews. It helps other people find us. In the meanwhile, the Christian Humanist Podcast is a show on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our, uh, our press liaison is Kristen Philippic, and our, our editor is... Ellen Peterson. Thank you. Ellen Peterson. I almost said Elizabeth, Every time. and I knew that was wrong. Anyways, Ellen, I'm so sorry. I just... There's just something. I don't know what it is. There's she does something. have a very unusual name, to be fair. It's Sorry, it's not unusual at all. Um, I don't know. Anyway, dear listeners, I repent in dust and ashes for never being able to remember our editor's name. She is wonderful and a saint and does so much work on our behalf and your behalf. And God love her, and next time I'll remember her name. In the meanwhile, this is David Grubbs for Nathan Gilmore and Michael Farmer. Let your sins be strong. Let your faith be stronger.